Mark chapter 14 and verse 43. So this is the Lord. He's with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is what uh, Mark tells us. And immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are ye come out as a thief, as against a thief, with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading also from his word. The arrival of Judas and a band of Christ's enemies at Gethsemane, just as the Lord's agonised prayers were coming to an end, reminds us and shows us the overruling providence of God in every aspect of this scene. Even in the detail of Judas's shameful betrayal of his friend. The Lord was finished his prayer. The hour that it took had come to its end. And God in his providence had given Christ this hour. No enemy hand was laid upon Christ's shoulder while he prayed. The mob arrived on cue. No, no human foe interrupted our Saviour in his solemn dealings with his Father. From now on, Jesus would be in the hands of the three most prominent men in Jerusalem, the high priest, Herod, the king, and Pilate, the Roman governor. Between them, they would determine the fate of Jesus of Nazareth. Or so it seemed. In truth, they all were tools in the hand of Almighty God. They were 
mere pawns in the outworking of the purpose and decree of God. The eternal counsels of the Godhead had looked and and established this way of sacrifice and the death of Christ and every detail appertaining to it. This was the great focus of the eternal purpose of redemption and it was moving inexorably to its climax. As the Lord gave himself willingly into the hands of these wicked men, he remarked these words, the scriptures must be fulfilled. They must be fulfilled. That is, they must be fulfilled not merely in the incidental details of his arrest, but in the great message of reconciliation and atonement and salvation. We've seen that in our thoughts already today in the, in the children's uh, uh, talk and, and even in, in uh, Solomon's uh, um, Proverbs. How that the Old Testament scriptures had pictures and types and metaphors and prophecies about what would happen when the Lord would visit his people. And this is what the Lord was referring to when he said the scriptures must be fulfilled. The scriptures not only declared these things should be, but they insisted that they must be. They must be fulfilled. They must be because the purposes and decrees of God are eternal, immutable. They cannot be frustrated. God determined to save his people by his son and by Christ's suffering and death. Accordingly, all these contributing aspects were also predetermined by God, including the timing and the nature and the manner and the individuals and all the circumstances of them. They must be, because the covenant of grace required it. The covenant of grace that was sure and unalterable and constant must stand. And in that covenant, Christ agreed to assume human nature, to obey, to suffer and to die as a man, and thereby do all his Father's will to drink the cup of suffering. He would represent and become sin for us. He would bear the penalty of the law against our transgressions. He would undergo the sufferings of death for our iniquities. So these also must be, or else Christ's faithfulness would fail and that's an impossibility. So now we are going today, if the Lord will, we are going to have the privilege of seeing in this nighttime arrest 
of our Lord in Gethsemane. We will have the privilege of seeing our Saviour's dominion, his power, his authority and his glory. And yet we will also witness his meekness and his submissiveness and his compliance with the will of his father and of his foes so that he might willingly and voluntarily take this cup of suffering and fulfill all the counsel of God on behalf of his people. So the first thing we're going to be thinking about is the glory of God uh, in Christ manifested in the events of this Gethsemane arrest. The Lord's enemies, we are told, came upon him with swords and staves. Swords and staves, or swords and sticks, clubs, if you like. We would we would maybe call them uh, 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 heavy weighted uh, clubs. They gathered themselves together into a great multitude and they draped themselves with the cover of darkness and they hoped that they would have the element of surprise. They enlisted the help of an intimate friend of Jesus to betray the Lord and they took every possible advantage that they could. But what a measly, miserable sight they make. And I don't want to be <clears throat> I don't want to, to, to be dismissive or, or uh, uh, inappropriate in any way here. But when we look at this crowd of people coming against the Lord Jesus Christ, we might even think that they were objectively laughable. We have a saying, um, it, it goes something like, it, it's like taking a knife to a gunfight. And, and although the likeness isn't at all appropriate because the Lord never did anyone any harm, there is nevertheless a parallel. Christ's enemies armed themselves with the very best means of attack and ammunition and advantage that they could muster. But it will never be any more successful against God than the swords and the sticks and the torches that these people brought against the Lord Jesus. Anyone who tries to go against God with the weapons of man's ability doesn't have a chance, doesn't have the inkling of what it is that they're really doing. The worldly wise foes of the church, they might bring the sword of science or the rod of reason or the lantern of enlightenment to defeat God. But they fail to realise that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Here was a, a, a great multitude of men with swords and sticks and lanterns coming against the Lord Jesus Christ and they did not appreciate for a moment just what they were doing. Moving against the Son of God with a stick in your hand. The Lord here showed the stupidity of man trying to fight against God by declaring in the presence of them all and in the presence of his disciples that if this was a fight about numbers, if this was a fight about weapons, he could call more than 12 legions of angels. Now, maybe it doesn't need to be uh, said, but, but that's about 75,000 angels that the Lord said he could call upon. And we're told in the book of Second Kings that a single angel slew in one night 185,000 armed Assyrian soldiers. So what if the high priest's great multitude that he sent to arrest Jesus vastly outnumbered Jesus' eleven disciples? Or if their swords and their staves outmatched the disciples' two swords? It wasn't the disciples that they were fighting against. It was God. It was God. And that is something for us to remember. This age in which we live imagines that it is so clever, so smart, so, so wise. And the wise of this world with their philosophies and their religion and their anti-religion, they can outnumber the Lord's people. They can out-talk us. They can out-resource us. They can out-maneuver the Lord's little flock. But it isn't us that they're fighting against. It's God himself. And if we stand upon what is in this book, and if I as a preacher preach only the gospel in this book, then it isn't me that the unbeliever has the problem with. It's God. And the God of this book, the God of the Bible, is well able to defend himself. I do mention from time to time the preacher uh, Robert Hawker, and Robert Hawker had a, a little commentary um, called the Poor Man's uh, Commentary, and he writes in uh, he writes in in that commentary with respect to this incident of the. A uh, great multitude of the, the high priest's soldiers, men and soldiers coming to arrest the Lord in the garden. He, he says this about it, this, this uh, incident of Christ's arrest and, and the miracle um, which occurred when the Lord identified himself to the multitude. We're told um, that John, it is in, in the parallel passage, tells us that they all fell backward onto the ground. And just commenting on uh, that incident, Robert Hawker says this. He says, According to my apprehension of things, 
This was the greatest miracle. Pause there and think about that. So, so, so for all the miracles that the Lord performed, Hawker is telling us that in his opinion, this incident in Gethsemane is the greatest miracle that we have upon record produced by apparently the slightest exertion of Christ's power. He goes on, reader, figure to yourself an army of soldiers with weapons falling backward to the earth only at the simple words of Jesus, I am. And then ask your own heart, who but God could have wrought such a miracle? And I think, this is me speaking now, I think Mr Hawker may have a point in what he has said here. And I would add, as I suggested in yesterday's little introduction, that I suspect that not only did the Lord knock them down with his I am, but I suspect that he also held them down. He knocked that great multitude down and he silenced them on the ground until he had conducted all the other business that, are, that is recorded by the other gospel writers. Now, if this had just been a, a big chaotic mess in the darkness, then the words that Jesus spoke and the, 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 the interactions that took place hardly would seem likely. But if the Lord held those men in place while he spoke both to the priests and to his disciples, remember, he censured the priests um, because they, they didn't arrest him when he was in the temple daily preaching. Uh, he rebukes his disciples concerning the use of a sword. And he even gained the mob's agreement that the disciples should go free and only Christ himself be detained. And I suspect that the Lord was exerting some force upon them in order to exact those concessions. But I want, to, I want to mention another evidence of the Lord's power. Not only did he, he, he make all these men fall by the simple statement, I am, I am he. Who are you looking for? I am he. And they all fell down. But here's another evidence of the Lord's power. And we have it um, um, recorded here in, in our passage in Mark. And it's the healing of the high priest's servants severed ear. That ear, we're told, was cut off. And the healing of that ear, the healing of the, the, the gash in the side of that man's head, ought to have affected all those who saw what happened. Yet even confronted with the clear evidence of a miracle and the divine power of Jesus to do what he did, the man's name was Malchus, to do what he did with, with Malchus's ear, shows us that these men who came to arrest Jesus were blind to Christ's true identity. 
even though they saw the evidence of his miracles before their very eyes. And it shows us the hardness of the human heart and the deadness of the human soul in its natural state. People think that if they only saw a miracle, they would believe in God. And some preachers and some churches imagine that if they can engineer a miracle, then people will come to faith. And these meetings go on all the time. Faith meetings and miracle working meetings. And it's just not true. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane is proof of the fact that it's not true. Except God the Holy Spirit creates new life in a dead soul, there will be no faith and no experience of grace, supposing they saw the most wonderful miracles ever performed. These men were as much Christ's enemies on the return journey to Jerusalem as they were before they saw his power, and even in the case of Malchus, felt his healing hand. Now, I'm not going to repeat the story that's in the, the passage, but you'll remember how Peter had wounded Malchus. We're not told that it's Peter in Mark's gospel, but we are in John's gospel. Peter evidently tried to kill this man. And, and we shouldn't be under any, uh, any illusions about that. If, if, you, um, if you lunge at someone's head with a sword, with the force that you're going to slice off his ear, then you're trying to kill that man by cleaving his head. And that was what Peter was trying to do. And we, we should be in no doubt that the Lord's healing of the gash in the side of that man's head very likely saved his life. Many bad things could have flowed from Peter's act. And yet the Lord overruled in that moment. He healed the injury. He restored the man. And he exonerated his disciple. Now we could apply this lesson generally in the context of the church's role in society or personally as a pastor's role in the pulpit in the church. And we could remind ourselves that the only sword that we should wield is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God and the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've said it often, I'll repeat myself again, because Increasingly, I perceive that the church is becoming militant and political. It's not our job. It's not the church's role to be political. It's not the church's role to be a pressure group. And it's not the preacher's job to exercise a ministry using the weapons of a carnal kind. The gospel wins converts. Not slick tricks of some kind of emotional manipulation. Paul tells the uh, Corinthians, 
the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That was what Peter tried to do. He tried to use a sword. He tried to use a carnal weapon to defend Christ and to defend the gospel. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I say we might apply it like that. But in truth, perhaps the greatest application is Christ's overruling Peter's fault and failure. And Christ overruling our faults and failures for his glory and for our good. Then, in the Garden of Gethsemane and now, the Lord even takes the wrong things that we do. Peter's mistake, Peter's wrongdoing, Peter's sin was taken by the Lord and used for the greater good. Can you imagine the consequences if Peter's action had begun that course of events which it most likely would have done and everybody had started fighting there a great multitude armed with swords and staves and this little group of disciples with two swords between them but the Lord intervened the Lord overruled the faults and failures of his people yours and mine then and now And we should not only think of the preserving grace of God in the context of taking us to heaven someday, but in the countless ways in which the Lord preserves us and protects us day by day from ourselves and from our own foolishness and from our own stupidity. So much for thinking about the power and authority of of the Lord. I want to mention too the meekness of the Lord in the face of this provocation. Because this is the other aspect that we see shining forth from the actions and the witness of our Saviour at this moment. At no time ever was the God-man's power used to harm men or women. It was only ever used to help. And having healed the ear of Malchus and having secured the liberty of his disciples, it's me you're after, let these go. And having explained to his disciples his purpose in submitting to these men that the scripture must be fulfilled, And having deterred them from using their swords to achieve their objectives. The Lord calmly complied with the wishes of his enemies. Isaiah tells us that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And that is what we see taking place here. And so the prophecy was fulfilled. Matthew chapter 12, verse 19. He shall not strive, nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. 
Our Saviour went willingly, voluntarily, to his execution and to his death for us. The obedience of Christ to the will of his Father led the Saviour to the cross and to the shedding of his blood. His obedience. He was obedient unto death. Drinking this cup of suffering was his Father's will and it was Christ's will too. He allows himself to be detained, to be bound and to be returned to Jerusalem, to the high priest and Herod and Pilate. Just as the sacrificial lamb was taken and bound and delivered to the high priest before it was sacrificed upon the altar, so Christ was bound and Christ was led away. And here we see the Lord's commitment to his covenant obligations. And we, we never lose sight of these things because this is what the Lord is telling us in the fullness of his life was always the great objective, the fulfillment of his covenant obligations. The responsibilities that he had taken as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Our Saviour knew exactly what the next few hours held for him. He knew what suffering lay before him. He knew the death that he would die. He knew about the high priest and Herod and Pilate. He knew about the beatings and the scourgings by the soldiers. He knew about the crown of thorns. He knew all the scriptures had foretold about him. He knew what he must endure. And he knew why he must endure it. The prophet Isaiah tells us it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Sometimes read these passages and we, we become overly familiar with them. But hear that word pleased in there. It pleased Christ's father to bruise his son. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Here and now, the Lord Jesus Christ was being made an offering for the sins of his church and for the sins of his people. This is the greatest night in the history of the world. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ willingly complying with the will of these enemies in order to fulfil the will of his Father and his own will for the sake of his church and people. Our Saviour knew his role in the eternal covenant and the end for which his blood would be spilled. He knew the divine obligation that rested upon him. And he knew and approved the purpose of God, set up before time to supply a substitute for chosen sinners and a redeemer for captive souls. 
This is the manifestation of our Saviour's love for us. This is the the, the fulfilment of the Saviour doing good for us. Willingly, gladly, laying down his life as a ransom to secure the salvation and freedom of his people. And as his disciples turned and fled into the darkness of the Mount of Olives, up onto the hillside in amongst the trees, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, The Son of God, the Son of Man, slipped his wrists into the hand ties of those priests and followed them all the way back to Jerusalem. There's a little postscript to this passage. It's an account of a young man that no other gospel writer mentions. It's peculiar to Mark's gospel. And I take it that he was not one of the Lord's immediate disciples, although it is clear that he followed the Lord. We don't know who this young man is. Maybe he lived in a little house on the hillside somewhere close to the Garden of Gethsemane. And maybe as he was uh, sleeping in his bed, he heard a noise and 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 rising uh, from from sleep, he he drew this sheet around about him and and went out uh, onto the hillside to see what all the noise and 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 what all the activity was about. Maybe he was simply venturing out to see what was happening. Maybe he was a young man from the house where Jesus had shared the last supper with his disciples. And he had followed the disciples from there, hiding in amongst the bushes and behind the trees and and watching the things that transpired there in the garden. We don't know who he was. But I'm going to give you my idea anyway. Personally, I like to think that this was Mark, the writer of this gospel. That this was the man we have come to know as John Mark, who who one day would become a, a, a preacher in his own right, an evangelist in his own right, and who uh, went with Paul and, and Barnabas and was a bit of a disappointment to the Apostle Paul and then ultimately a help to him. I like to think that this was Mark. I may be completely wrong. The Holy Spirit is withheld any conclusive identification, so it remains so. But there's two lessons that I just want to draw quickly and then we're we're done. Two quick lessons just from the uh, fact that the Holy Spirit has recorded, Mark has recorded these two verses with respect to this young man. First is this. Judas was gone. But there were others behind him. Soon another would rise up to take Judas's place. Now it wasn't Mark, it was another man called Matthias, I know that. But here's the point. God will not leave himself without a witness. And in the very moment that Judas's uh, usefulness, Judas's is, is, 
wickedness, Judas's betrayal of the Lord was manifested in sin. And Judas would ultimately be gone in, in just a short time. Here we see God the Holy Spirit reminding us that there were others who followed the Lord. And God will not leave himself without a witness. And the second is this. We saw how the Lord secured the deliverance from arrest of all his disciples. Remember what he says in John, I'm the one that you're seeking, let these go. So the Lord interposed himself between the mob and his disciples and he secured their freedom. A lovely picture in itself of the redemptive work and the intercessory work of Christ. But the soldiers thought that they could take one who wasn't of the twelve. They, they discovered this young man hiding amongst the trees and they thought that they could take him. Well, that wasn't to be either. And though Satan tries to enslave all in sin, he cannot restrain any for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died. And all of the elect will escape his clutches. None whom Christ represents will fail to be delivered from this body of sin. And this young man fleeing naked speaks of every sinner who flees to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. May the Lord enable us to be amongst those who find in the Lord Jesus Christ that deliverance, that freedom, that liberty, that forgiveness of sin as we seek him at the throne of his mercy and grace. Amen.